Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 today. And after Jesus got into a boat, he crossed the sea and came to his own town. And then some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And then some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. And he stood up and went to his home. And when the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe. And they glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. The word of the Lord. We have been in a series in God's name talking about how do we respect God's name in words and in action. And on the flip side of that, how do we blaspheme God's name where we disrespect God's name in words and actions. And so we've been spending this whole series so far setting up the Old Testament background. Uh, We talked about the Ten Commandments itself you know, you've got ten rules, what, what makes it in the rule list, uh, and that ten highlighted commandments, that one of them is about not taking God's name in vain, of not uh, blaspheming God, of speaking less of God's name or using it wrongfully. And we, we then read how in context of the giving of that commandments that the people of God in the wilderness were already breaking those commandments, were already blaspheming God, were already making idols and the consequences and the the challenges that that brings. And so we see how quickly we end up disrespecting God's name, even when we try not to. And then last week we read from Samuel and Eli about what are the consequences of this. And we read that there are Old Testament laws, like in Leviticus, uh, that required the death penalty for blaspheming. Like, that's pretty serious. Uh, the death penalty was not recommended for that many sins in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and that one gets that gravity of that kind of consequence. And we wrestled with the fact that it talked about this prescribed stoning, that the community should, should, should stone those who blaspheme. And yet the story of Samuel and Eli, when God says, Um, pronounces judgment on Eli's sons for having blasphemed God's name, Uh, they end up dying in battle, not in a community stoning. And so there's something interesting going on about how does the community live out uh, the severity of the consequences that they understand are associated with blasphemy. And we're going to continue to see that as we go towards Holy Week, in which Jesus will eventually be charged with blasphemy leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. In the midst of this, I think it's a good transition to the story of Jesus. If we've got the, the weightiness of what it is to charge someone with blasphemy, that we first get some instances of people thinking that about Jesus, not actually voicing it out loud, but they start thinking a bit about Jesus in this way. And so let's get into this story and see ourselves into this story from Matthew chapter 9. It will be helpful to have a sense of background. Matthew talks about scribes in the scene. Scribes uh, were well-educated. It's a time where not everyone was literate. And so here's a people who are trained to read and write, therefore also trained to be able to read and engage with Scripture. So a lot of legal interpretation and, and what's the right way to do things or the wrong way. 
And so this is a learned, educated, um, primarily a little bit wealthier, if you're going to get that kind of education. And so this more literate, religious, wealthy group is, is sitting there with Jesus one day, and they know the laws that we've been talking about the last few weeks. And into that scene, a changing moment happens. And it says in Matthew 9, 2, some people were carrying a paralyzed man on a bed. So if you can imagine just like a stretcher, uh, maybe the only time you might see this is maybe if you watch sports and someone's had a really terrible injury and they have to get a stretcher underneath someone to lift them up and now we put them on a motorized cart. Uh, I'm sure the friends in the story would have loved a motorized cart to take their friend. Um, in a different version of this story, we have the details about being lowered through a roof of, a, of the house. And, but these friends are carrying this paralyzed man on a mat and having to take him. And they're taking him, they're taking him to Jesus. And we have to understand how people in the room see this man. Because as Christians, if you've grown up in the church, you hear this story, you already are sensing and thinking about healings and, and celebrations. But like to get what the people in the room are thinking, the scribes in the room see this man who is paralyzed, maybe through accident, maybe through birth. And from a certain point of view, which we see glimpses of in the Old Testament, People were easy to write people off of, if you've had something bad happen to you, it must be because you deserved it. And we all know this line of thought, that if you got sick, if you got hurt, if you lost your property, if a storm came, whatever happens, if something bad happened, well, surely you deserved it. You did something wrong. God is punishing you. God is judging you. And so you might think about Old Testament plague stories whether you go to Egypt and think about those or you think about other ones in which Israel is said to disobey God and a plague happens in the story. You most clearly can read this. If you just pick up part, any part of the book of Judges, read it, you'll get a cycle of stories in which things are good until people sin. When they sin, God allows people to be victorious against them in battle then they cry out for liberation and say, God, save us. And then God raises up a judge, a leader to, to liberate them. The people return to God. God saves them. They're celebrating. They're living in peace. And then they sin again. And God lets them go into captivity. And so there's this cycle of, of sin leads to judgment. And this is the whole backdrop. If any of you love the book of Job, if you've never read the book of Job, it's a long book, but a powerful book in which the whole premise of the story is this man who lost all of his family, who lost his own health, and all of his friends look at him and say, you've done something wrong. You need to repent of something, right? And Job the whole time saying, look, look, God, come down here because I don't think I've done anything wrong. I've been, I've been faithful. But like society sees people and they see things that are hard and they go, you must have done something to deserve that. We see people do that all the time. And you say, oh, I don't want to help out this person who's poor. And you're like, oh, they must have done something to, be, to deserve this. Uh, we easily write people off that whatever their circumstances are, that they deserve it. And these scribes look at a man who's paralyzed, and they're thinking, he probably deserves that. He probably got what he deserved in this story. And so it might feel cold and callous, but we do this often without even realizing it, we 
make ourselves feel like we are right and God must be blessing us and maybe if God's not blessing somebody else, maybe they deserve that. And so I think about um, our own ways of struggling with this. You know, there's a lot of people groups who, a lot of religious folks, a lot of people who, who claim Christ as Lord who are anti-medications because they think if you have faith, God heals you and therefore don't take medications to stay away from that stuff because um, God wouldn't hurt you if you were faithful. And so you'll see that in um, the last year. Uh, I know, you know, being out at personal care at, one, at a few occasions of we were distributing personal care hygiene product supplies and, you know, someone would come up to me and they'd see us wearing masks and they'd say, oh, you're, you're a man of God. Why are you wearing that mask? You're going to be okay. And that's from the vantage point of God will take care of you if you're faithful and you will be punished if you're not faithful. Um, but we make judgments about people based on just how they look, just on their bodies, the way they present themselves. Think about um, whoever you've seen and you've made judgments on just based on their outward appearance. Um, and that could be um, someone's kind of the way that they've, they've modified their own appearance in this world of piercings or tattoos or whatever it is. Um, but we all modify ourselves. Um, for those of us who are blessed to, to have hair, uh, we cut our hair in certain kinds of ways. Uh, for those of us who have been blessed to have the money and opportunity to uh, get braces, we modify our teeth in certain kinds of ways. Uh, for those of us who have glasses or contacts, we've modified our vision in a lot of ways. Of like, We all try to take ourselves and present ourselves to each other in the ways that feels right and good to us. And yet we look at some people and we feel like we know that God's not on their side. And I think about those who, you know, in this story it's about disabilities, uh, those who can use their, their, their body in certain kinds of ways. For some people it's, um, you know, it might not be that, it might be uh, kind of tumors or growths or all sorts of things about our physical appearance that makes us feel different than those around us. And I think about the fact that in the midst of our div division and our fights about um, culture kinds of things, that we neglect that people don't always fit into the easy boxes that we make for people, um, that there are people whose uh, bodies don't fit into the norms that we have for ourselves. Of um, There are people who are born whose bodies don't necessarily make it easy to dictate. Is this a, a male or female? Uh, there are people whose genetics don't make that easy. Um, but we want to make things easy, and we want to make sure that we sense this person's right with God, this person's not right with God, and we make those judgments based on our vision. And in this story, the scribes see this paralyzed man, and they're thinking, here's a sinner. Here's somebody distant from God. Here's somebody uh, who's less than and who's probably deserving of this situation. So if you can imagine yourself into that, if you can imagine what that judgment feels like, into that moment, Jesus uh, brings a different perspective. He brings a different opportunity, a different invitation. Uh, we know from other gospel stories, uh, from John chapter 9, that uh, the disciples asked Jesus, hey, who sinned to make this man uh, blind? And it, was it him or was it his parents? Like, who deserves the blame for this? And he rejects this, uh, this either-or question. But here in this story, Jesus sees the, the, the people carrying the man on the bed, and when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, 
son. Your sins are forgiven. I love that language of like son, of like there's such, there's such love or compassion in the way Jesus talks to this man. Um, he identifies with him. And we use the word sin, and, and when he says your sins are forgiven, we use that phrase a lot, and, and sometimes it's just helpful to be reminded about what's the, the range of meaning, what's going on when we use that kind of language. Um, sin can be used of a lot of different kinds of, of things, all things from like involuntary mistakes, things you weren't trying to do, uh, to serious offenses against God, of like blatantly wanting to do something harmful or wrong. But ultimately, it's a departure from either a human standard or a divine standard of of how things should be. It's a deviation from what should be. It's a separation from what should be. And ultimately, that separation is what's at stake um, because when we separate from who God intends us to be, we lose and we feel the pain of not being able to to live into what we could be. Um, But we also separate ourselves from each other and we separate ourselves from God. Uh, But we separate ourselves from God in a unique kind of way. I feel like a lot of us feel like if you sin, um, like if you were to sin that God has to leave the room because God can't be around sin or something like that. When what actually is going on is when you sin, you can't be in the room. You leave the room because you feel bad. You feel guilty. You feel embarrassed. You feel like you've messed things up. And you go to the other room and you realize God's there too. And you think about the story of Adam and Eve in the garden of God's showing up, and it's Adam and Eve who are hiding. It's, it's that feeling that when sin happens, we separate ourselves from each other. And imagine what this paralyzed man's life has been like, because it's not just some scribes who feel like he must have done something wrong, or maybe he's less than, but like society is going to ostracize that individual. He's going to not feel like he's fully a part of this community. And he's, he's going to feel like he has to run or hide from people, And in this moment, Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven. He's saying, like, you and God are together. You are okay. You are right with God. Uh, You're not having to be distant from God, but you are already declared free and forgiven. And you don't have to run or hide, but you can approach God. And you already see that in the story that these people are so faithful. They're trying to bring this man to God. Uh, But he is not someone to be separated out from society. He is to be brought in, and he is right with God. And so, like, if you've ever felt distant from someone you've loved, if you've ever felt distant from God, like being told your sins are forgiven is like, hey, you are there with God. God is right there with you. You don't have to run or hide. And that's good news. And we are sometimes surprised that good news doesn't sound like good news to everybody because some of the people in the room are not going to react positively to this idea that this paralyzed man is forgiven. Um, And we don't know what kinds of sins Jesus is talking about in the story. But the idea that you're forgiven and still paralyzed, they're going to have to, as scribes, have to deal with, what do I make sense of that this person is right with God and yet they don't seem like they are right with God? And so in Matthew 9, 3, it says, the scribes are saying to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Their response to, you are forgiven, is like, that guy's crazy. He's blaspheming. He's he's a sinner. Jesus is a sinner for saying the sinner is not a sinner. (laughs) Right? So they're on the complete opposite side of this story. And so surely they're thinking, 
this can't be the case. That man can't be forgiven, and this man can't be the one forgiving him. And so they assume Jesus wrongfully presents God's stance in the world. Uh, It's not just that they think Jesus isn't right to say that you're forgiven. They just don't believe it because they still see the paralyzed man. They still don't believe that that man could be a forgiven one. And so they think Jesus wrongfully presents God's forgiveness in the world. They think, who are you to offer that forgiveness? Who are you to say that God is the one forgiving? And in Mark's version of the story, they add on to this blasphemy charge in their heads. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? So instead of rejoicing that this man who's paralyzed is restored, renewed to God, they are... Uh, upset and angry and frustrated and feel like Jesus is blaspheming. And we know from last week that the consequence of blasphemy is death. So they're thinking, you deserve to die for pronouncing forgiveness for this man that I think is a sinner. And there's a way in which um, this, that perspective is the real blasphemy of the story. To say that God is not a forgiving God is to say something less than about God's name. To say that God is not the loving God is to say something less than about God's name. And so these people bring a picture of God to their lives that is less than the God revealed in Jesus. And so Jesus looks around the room, perceiving their thoughts. Maybe you've had that moment where you could just tell the room is not thinking positively about you. But he sees the room, he reads the room, and he sees the scribes, and he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Not just why do you think inaccuracies in your hearts, but this thought that this man can't be forgiven, that that forgiveness wouldn't go this way, is an evil thought. And Jesus calls out the scribes for that wickedness, and here's what would be very hard for them to accept While the scribes are thinking that man must be wicked because he's paralyzed, Jesus is saying you're wicked because you can't even see God's forgiveness for this person. And so Jesus heals the man and takes this story a step further. I think it's worth noting um, that we don't have it written out here, but we do have stories of Jesus in other gospel accounts um, asking people, would you like to be healed? We often assume people want to be healed. But Jesus does ask that question of some people that he heals in the Gospels. And presumably this man wants to be healed physically as well. And so why does Jesus heal this man's body in the story? Because the forgiveness part, he does that. Um, And this healing of the body is an add-on to the story. Why does Jesus heal the man's physical body? It's not because... The man needed to be physically healed to be right with God. There was nothing physical about this man that had to change to be okay with God. Like the forgiveness happens, you're still the paralyzed man. And that's okay. God is still close to you. You are forgiven. It's not about your body. Why does Jesus heal the man? He heals the man because of somebody else's brokenness. It's because of the brokenness of the scribes and their inability to see, their inability to see who God is in the world around them, that Jesus needs to open their eyes to the spiritual reality that this man is actually 
forgiven, that this is actually a man who is close to God and that their judgment is misplaced. And so it, it kind of runs with the story so many times in the Gospels, the, the people who are physically blind are the ones who can spiritually see. They're the ones crying out to God and saying right things about Jesus. All the while, people next to Jesus who physically can see aren't seeing what's really going on. And in this story, it's the same way. The paralyzed man who's forgiven, who's close to God, understands God before the scribes understand God. And so Jesus talks to the scribes. He says, which is it easier to do? Is it easier just to say out loud, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? He's asking, if I just wanted to play the part, wouldn't it be really easy to say your sins are forgiven? You couldn't verify it, right? You couldn't tell if I was right or wrong. It's a whole lot harder to say stand up and walk, right? Because that would be really easy to see of proof. And so it goes on to say, but so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He then turns to the paralytic and says, stand up, take your bed, and go home. And the man stood up and went to his home. Saying, you can't even understand this forgiveness thing. Well, let me give you something visible that maybe will make you pause and rethink things and reimagine how God is operating in the world. Turns to the man, stand up, walk, go home. And the healing wasn't because that man was less than but because the scribe's spiritual vision was less than. And I think this story invites us into all sorts of wonderful questions for ourselves. And I don't know where you are today and which story question might resonate with you the most. No matter what, we should spend some uncomfortable time thinking of ourselves as the scribes. Ask some questions of yourselves of when have I been the scribe in the story? When have I... Um, not hoped for forgiveness for somebody? When would I have been like, you know what, I don't want to see this person as God's child, as forgiven. When have I let judgment rule over me? Uh, What do I need to ask forgiveness of? Who do I need to see in a new light? And I think that's great prayer time uh, reflection throughout this week. Just who do I need to see differently? Because we all need to see some people differently. But who do I need to see differently? God, give me eyes to see them as you see them. Maybe, though, you might need to also spend some time as the paralyzed man who is healed in the story. I love Jesus' words, take courage. You know, be strengthened, be brave, take courage. God is on your side. Like, there's a reason to be courageous because God is with you. And so you might be afraid, you might be uncertain. What is it to hear God speaking out to you, saying, take courage? Because there's a reason that he needs courage in the story. He is around people who see him as less than, who who don't uh, see God on his side. Sometimes we are in rooms of poisonous, toxic uh, perspectives, and we need to take courage that we are not alone when the whole room feels like It's turned against you. And so what is it just to hear God saying, take courage today? But also, you might feel like one of the friends in the story. Maybe you feel solid about your place with God and you're not worried about that, but maybe you've realized some people see people differently and you want to go with the person who is feeling outcast 
and you want to carry them to God, carry them to Jesus, what is it to tell someone that they are actually loved when they feel hated? What is it to take someone to a safe place instead of a toxic place? What is it to invite people into the life of God, to the, to the invitation to also serve? Because that's what taking that person on the mat is, is serving others of, hey, walk with me in God's ways. We're going to serve others. We're going to make sure people know that they are loved and that they can be forgiven. Sometimes that invitation is to uh, moments like right now where it's an actual worship service where we celebrate God's love together. Uh, I I love if you are on our Facebook page, you might have seen this week, um, I posted a historical account of, of 1853 talking about the courage and the faithfulness and the bravery of people uh, who are our ancestors in faith, uh, who stepped out when it wasn't comfortable, when it wasn't easy. And I told the story of um, before churches had baptistries indoors and had great like indoor plumbing for that, um, it was a whole lot more common to be taking uh, baptisms out to rivers and to lakes. And so on that particular March 5th, 1853, they had to break the icy water to go into baptism. Like, what is it to have an urgency and a care and a desire to run to God that icy water doesn't stand in the way? Like, we can be the friends who are celebrating God's love and forgiveness and want to bring somebody else with us. Like, to be the paralyzed man who goes home, celebrate it, but like, don't spend the rest of your life just grateful that you're the one who's been healed, but like, take somebody else to God. Take them to God's love and forgiveness. And I love in the story that the crowd, when they see this experience, they are marveling at it. And what they marvel at is that God would give forgiveness even to these human beings, that the power to forgive has been granted wider than they expected. And there's a role of the church to be about offering God's forgiveness and love to those around us. And Matthew talks about that, especially like Peter gives this great confession of faith, you are the Christ. And then Christ goes into this discussion about, hey, you can bind and loose things on earth. Like, you can restrict people or liberate people. Like, forgiveness and and shame, like, these possibilities exist. Be about the work of freeing people. And so we have that, that invitation that as Christ brought forgiveness, that we make sure that forgiveness is known, is felt, is experienced, is invited, is offered to those around us. And so in just a little while, we're going to be taking communion together. And it's that reminder of going before God, of being brought to God's presence and feeling what it is to feel that God's saying, child, son, daughter, child, you are forgiven. Take courage. And what a beautiful, powerful, simple message And yet one that is so hard to feel when you're feeling like you're in the midst of toxicity, of midst of messages that you are less than or not enough. And so would you just join me in prayer as we sit and we dwell with God's message of who we are today. Lord, we often can forget the goodness and greatness of your love and mercy. Lord, I ask that whoever... Uh, is worshiping with us today, that they might feel that invitation towards the identity that you offer, that you are forgiven, 
that you are loved, that you are a child. Lord, for some of us, we've heard the opposite message so often in our lives that it's hard to accept and hard to truly embrace the identity that you give us. Lord, for all who have been told that you are less than, for all who have been told that you are not worthy, Lord, I ask that you might lift them up, give them courage, and that they might take comfort in your embrace. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for each time that we've looked at someone and we have assumed that they were on the wrong side of you, that we have assumed that they were less than. Lord, help us to see those around us with your eyes and not our own. And Lord, I ask that you'd give us the strength and the courage to be the friends who bring people to you, that we might not just be complacent, but we might uh, love and have a passion for your mission on this world that we want to be a part of it. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.